there are secrets out there, guys, performance marketing secrets, and knowing just one or two of them can absolutely light up your funnels. Let's go. This is the Revenue Driven CMO. I'm your host, Chris Mechanic. Join me as I uncover the secrets of the world's most elite CMOs marketing leaders. The Revenue Driven CMO is sponsored by Web Mechanics, the AI-driven performance agency that makes you smarter. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another exciting episode of Revenue Driven CMO. I am your host, Chris Mechanic, and I'm super excited for today's episode. We've got an awesome guest in store for you today. Uh, Our guest today is a problem solver by nature. He balances, really, I would say, creativity with an entrepreneurial spirit. Um. He's led uh, marketing for startups, Fortune 500 companies, global agencies, uh, in SaaS, in B2B, in B2C. He's really a very uh, well-rounded marketer, and I would say like a great uh, blend of art and science, which we really love here on the show. Currently, he's chief marketing officer at MetaMap, uh, which is a really exciting, fast-growing company, uh, all about customer identity and discovering untapped potential therein which we'll learn a lot more about. Uh, but ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show, Mr. Dan Buchacher. How are you, Dan? I'm great, Chris. Thanks for that uh, incredibly generous introduction. And I agree with you. I'm super passionate about blending art with science. Um, it's it's actually why I got into marketing in the first place. The idea that I could do both seemed uh, too, too exciting to pass up. Yeah. Yeah. I have a similar story, which I, I may get into here uh, in a second, but we got a lot to cover and I'm super excited to be speaking with you. Um, and, and I'm definitely interested to learn more about MetaMap. But before we do, you know how we like to roll. We like to lead you know, with the value. Uh, tell us what is one of the biggest uh, or one of your best kept secrets to success in marketing? Yeah, you know, I think it's a it's a best kept secret for me because it's something that I've I've really learned over time. I'd say I jumped into marketing for the art side, and we'll probably get into that uh, a little bit later. Yeah. But what's really been captivating me more and more recently is the science side, and so uh, the the secret that I feel like I've unlocked more and more myself recently is this idea of building what I call the ultimate experiment driven culture, mm-hmm. and um, you know. To experiment is probably not a, a a big aha for anybody on listening to this podcast. We all experiment regularly. Yeah. But what I feel like I've been on this sort of path of discovery is really understanding what that means to build an entire culture based around it. Um, I feel like the the more I've been in this job, the more I have realized I'd say I'm wrong like 60% of the time when I when right. I'm trying to speculate something. And so that's a little humbling. It's sort of like flipping a coin would be a, b- a better way to decide than going with my gut. Yeah. And so it's really this idea of how do you build a very intentional culture around experimentation at its core? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so how do you do that exactly? Because I know, you know, we work here with many different clients. Some are inclined towards experimentation. Some are, I think, by nature, sort of, um, not opposed to it necessarily, but they are resistant to new ideas and change. How do you enter into an organization and start building that culture, especially where one may not have existed before? Well, obviously, the more you can start to show results from it, the more that folks will uh, come along with you. But 
I kind of have three elements when I think about what does that mean to kind of be a culture, you know, a culture that's experiment driven. Number one is you have to do it regularly and continuously and not just in one area, right? I think demand generation is an area where everybody kind of shakes their head and goes like, yeah, of course you're experimenting. You're trying this audience versus this audience, A-B testing. Another might be um, sort of some product design elements, right? The, the, the red button or the blue button is kind of the classic. Um, right. But I'm talking about sort of across your organization. How can you find opportunities to do this in as many different areas as possible? This could be messaging, targeting, creative channels. Uh, if you have a free tier or product-led growth motion, persona development, positioning. There's opportunities to kind of test and learn in all of these areas. Yeah. Um, number two is be structured about it. So uh, a lot of times people associate experimenting with, well, let's just try it. But I yeah. actually think there's a lot more rigor and structure you need to bring to, to get the most out of it. And that yeah. also helps to bring people along, as you as you mentioned. And then the third is making sure that all of these experiments are building towards putting together a broader, more cohesive strategy. So you need to show that you are, this is all coming together. These are pieces of the puzzle that are starting to form a more complete picture. And I yeah. think that's really been instrumental with getting people to to buy in. Yeah, no, there's there's a lot there. So um and and I think you're right that in demand gen, you know, it's really easy to experiment. Uh experimenting in other areas, I think, might be a little bit uh, new for people. Um, so in, what would you say there are the top areas that you like to experiment in, like other than demand gen, is it mostly around messaging and, and product positioning or like, are you talking about even like recruiting, for instance, do you experiment there? That's a, that's a great one. Recruiting. Um, I haven't run as many recruiting experiments, but I love that idea. Actually, I, I think we should, you know, um, because again, I think there are all sorts of assumptions we make in recruiting um, in terms of who we think we're looking for, et cetera, that I think if there's more structured as an experiment, it can work It can work a lot better. Uh, we have a free tier at Metamap. Um, <laughs> I had one at Labelbox as well, which is my uh, job just previous to this one. And I think that's a phenomenal place to experiment, not only to try to understand a customer who's in buying mode, but not ready to talk to a salesperson, yeah. But also we have imported so many uh, learnings from free tier into the actual paid product as well. And mm. so we have slowly been forming uh, hypotheses around what we think are the aha moments in the product when you first start to use it that gets you to fall in love. And yeah. it's been this really interesting process of understanding if that's true. In other words, customers who reach those moments, are they more likely to upgrade? Are they more likely to talk to a salesperson? But also, yeah. how do we get them to those moments? And so everything from you know tours to checklists to we had a checklist that those who were engaging with it was doing incredibly well, but almost nobody was using the checklist. And so we became more intrusive with it. Instead of sort of hiding it off in the corner, we made you start by sort of acknowledging it. And that actually worked incredibly well. Um, yeah. And then you know, also to email sequences to follow up with those who engage or don't engage. Um, so anyways, you know, th those are like some examples within free tier. Um, each one of those ends up being an experiment where we run it. We see what kind of results we get. We sort of um, discuss what's working, what isn't working about it, and kind of determine what we think is the next the next action coming out of it. Yeah. And then one more thing on that first point of regularly and continuously. 
Like I know that a lot of times there will be a lot of excitement around testing and then, you know, a couple tests get done. There may be, they may be failed tests. They may be inconclusive where that test is just running, you know, for a long time and, and there's no clear winner. Uh, and then that excitement sometimes begins to fade. How do you keep it regular? Like, do you have a quota for testing? Like, is it like, hey, must do three tests a month in each area? Or like, how do you kind of keep that regularity going even when sometimes the results may be discouraging or non-existent? Yeah, we do a little of it um, using quotas, like you said, run at least three this quarter or four, whatever it is. Um, but I think the other really important thing is making sure uh, we do this quarterly, but you know, there's other cadences you can run this at. Um, make sure that the experiments you're running are ideally flowing from objectives that you've set for the quarter. So we do OKRs at Metamap. And so, for example, one of our core OKRs in demand gen this quarter is improving our conversion rate from marketing qualified accounts to sales qualified accounts. We see a drop off there that uh, is suboptimal for us. We want to improve that. So really, the goal becomes that's actually the objective for the quarter is we need to fix that. So if we yeah. run one experiment and we get there and we sort of double it and we're there, it's not necessarily let's just keep running them because we promised ourselves we were going to run four. But yeah. more likely, you run one. If you're not seeing the bump, now the question is, do you experiment on top of that? Do you kill that and go in a different direction? But that's what we try to use to lead us instead of just kind of setting a number and going with it. So it really is more about we've we've kind of pointed at the the you know point in the distance that we want to get to and now it's just a question of what path it's going to take to get there yeah that makes a ton of sense that makes a ton of sense and then it brings real like meaning behind the test and yes cuz a lot of uh you know critics of testing or when people are critical of testing it's sometimes the the critiques are around what I would call more of the superficial tests, like, you know, this color versus that color, or, you know, is the image going to be on the left or the right? Like those things aren't really deep enough psychologically to, uh, to impact an objective, probably like increasing MQL to SQL conversion rates. I just think that this is such a timely topic, like especially uh, in 2023, like the general MO uh, amongst B2B tech and SaaS companies is really like, this is the year of efficiency. You know, like everyone totally. was sort of spending like a drunken sailor for the last like couple years. Um, and this has really been all about efficiency. And I think that testing and conversion rate optimization is probably the most powerful lever in that it can really be like a rising tide that lifts all ships. But I think it's also mostly underutilized. Like if you, if you, poll 100 CMOs, almost all of them would be like, yes, of course we're testing. But if you if you double click into that and you kind of uh, dig beneath the surface, you'll find that they're probably not very structured about it um, or very rigorous in their methodology. There's more of like a, hey, let's test everything um, sort of a test protocol. But what were you going to say? Um, right. No, as I was well, I, I totally agree with that. First of all, I think uh, doing more with less is definitely sort of the mantra that I think all companies are on right now. And um, and we certainly are. And I, I appreciate that. Like, I actually prefer that, to be honest with you. I think the constraints so that you have to um, be more strategic, be more methodical to get to where you're going, I sort of appreciate that challenge more than who can throw the most money and kind of get there fastest, you know? 
Yeah. Um, but when you talk about structure, I really think that is the key. Um, so for us, it's you know setting those objectives for the quarter. Experiments kind of flow out of that as, okay, what experiments are we going to run to try to achieve those objectives? The next step is actually not to jump into the experiment. It's uh, to collect any research you have. Oftentimes, you know, going back to the example of free tier, what can we learn if we go over all of the user data we already have on free tier? What does it look like they're doing, they're not doing? When I talked about those aha moments, we were hypothesizing at first exactly what those were. We actually didn't know when we started. Um, mm -hmm. So we made our best guesses, and we but we made those guesses based on the data where it looked like, and we didn't have uh, very many users when we started, but where did it look like people were engaging as well as with our paid customers as well? Like what's our best guess on where they really start to gain traction? Um, so wherever you can get research, I think it, it's useful. Then you design that hypothesis. I think that's the other thing, Chris, that causes these experiments not to die out as much is you go in with your best guess. We all took you know, science in high school, so we know how this works, but try to define a hypothesis. That way, you know what the finish line is, you know, as well as the metric, like what is the expected result um, in a quantifiable way for that for that hypothesis. Um, you know if you're falling short, you know if you um, are way surpassing it, and then you can start to uh, interpret why you think that happened. And that hopefully gives you the momentum to go on to the next step. I think socializing is also huge socialize before the experiment is run. I can't tell you how many times someone has given me a really smart piece of input that saved me a ton of time up front because they're like, that's not going to work and here's why. And I was like, yeah. okay, well then let's not run that experiment. Like let's kind of, you know, work off of that. And then interpreting on the back end as well. So we were doing something recently um, where we were looking over a bunch of analysis on enterprise versus mid-market and enterprise churn numbers suddenly started to look really bad um, long story short, after digging into it and socializing with a lot of other people, realized that there is a period of time that a salesperson who came well before me uh, had used a very quirky definition of enterprise that somehow included a whole sector that they just wanted to give to a certain rep. Um, yeah. So for that reason, they made that decision. So we didn't actually have an enterprise churn problem. We had a definition problem in Salesforce, but mm -hmm. it's only sometimes by socializing results and just being very being able to openly ask, we don't know why this happened to you. And all of a sudden you get back some really interesting input. So you don't have to feel, I think, like you are the um, sort of the the master, here's the answer from on high. Sometimes it is getting back results and saying, what do you all think? Why do you think this is? And you get some really interesting perspective across the board, whether it's you know engineering, sales, product, et cetera. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense too. And I'm sure that I've wasted uh, a ton of time probably by failing to socialize things. Um, you know, we have this uh, nifty template that we use when we go about testing. We call it the um, conversion matrix or the experiment matrix. And it basically lays out each hypothesis on a row. And then Love each it. hypothesis is scored uh, by things such as technical difficulty, like how difficult is this technically creative difficulty how much you know creative will this require uh the current baseline of whatever that conversion rate is is always on there known data gaps like how confident are we there's a confidence score and then there's an impact score which is if we're right about this 
how big of a deal is it? You know, like, is it just like an incremental improvement in click-through rate or is it like 20% increase in revenue, you know, on the high end? So then we crunch all those together to prioritize those experiments. Um, and that helps us to be structured. And then that document, like anytime anybody gets an idea, any random idea, it goes onto that document. And then you end up with a hundred ideas and you go through and take the time to score the ones that are most promising. What kind of system do you guys use to like stay structured like that? Are you using some sort of tech or tool or is it mostly kind of Asana and spreadsheet driven like in our case? We, yeah, we, we throw them all into Monday. So we use Monday as a base. Oh, nice. um, Asana is another great one. Yeah, I do too. Um, I love how you can kind of set notifications. You can kind of comment on individuals. So we get entire streams, uh, threads going about kind of particular experiments and, and, um, questioning and le leading to other boards, et cetera. And we actually have separate experiment boards kind of by section of marketing. So uh, product marketing has has one, demand generation has one, content has one. So we sort of have a, a variety of uh, experiment boards that lets each owner kind of run their own. Um, we've played around with some weighted scores similar to what you were talking about. Not as um, in-depth as, as the one that you actually went through, though. That's really interesting. I'd love to see that. Um, we've played around with some weighted scores, but, uh, at least for this company where we are now, what we're really letting lead the decision on which experiments to prioritize is based on starting with those objectives and just making a call sort of, you know, in a, in a group setting, determining what we think are, um, the bets that we most likely want to prioritize to that will help us get to those objectives. So it's a little less about, um, creative and technical, we, we sort of try to find a way at least to get to the MVP, which is another big thing around experiments that I always approach it, which is the first version does not have to be perfect. I love, yeah. you know, uh, it's, it's probably my favorite principle from the world of product is can you, how quickly can you get a beta out there using as little resource as possible to at least give you signal, right? So I'm, I'm always a big fan of even if we don't have the perfect piece of content, let's say behind the ad or behind the landing page, can we get up the ad or the landing page promising the piece of content? The content may not be great on the other end, but if we see amazing click-through, for example, in that case, uh, we know we'd better invest in actually building that piece of content that can better convert, you know? So yeah, I'm, totally. I'm just a really big fan of that because, um, you know, most of the startups I've worked at have been Series B, Series C, Series D you don't have the luxury of time to kind of build everything out perfect the first time. You really do have to iterate incredibly quickly. Yeah, so it's not build it and they will come. It's more so the opposite almost. Like see if they come and then if they do, then build it. Totally. I'm a big, I'm a big fan of, I call them first drafts too. Like let's launch the first draft. That's going to be enough to start to tell us if we've got something or not. It also, I think, helps surface the questions you didn't think about. So we were we were just very recently having an internal debate about um, uh, what I call the go-to-market priority framework, which is exactly who are we focusing on by country, by industry, kind of a sharpening of our of our audience. And there was all sorts of debate about well, we still want to see this, and we want to see this, and we want to kind of run a couple more experiments and and you know talk to more salespeople. And and I finally said, let's launch it. We've seen enough to launch it. Once we launch it we can adapt from there. It's not set in stone, as you said earlier. And uh, so we did. We did this just about a month ago. And I got to tell you, the number of people who have come forward and said, okay, but here's a concern and here's a worry. 
in general, it is holding. Like I would say it was kind of 80% strong. But what we're learning, I think, is so much deeper um, because people have something to react to. It's so much more, um, the the feedback is just sharper in terms of this is what I think you're missing here. And so we have uh, continued to optimize it as we go. I think we've made some really helpful optimizations to it, but it was only by kind of getting that first version out into the world and saying, we're going for it. We feel 80% confident that I think you start to really um, be able to fill in those gaps way more efficiently, again, to use that word. Yeah, absolutely. And we one time saved a client like hundreds, if not thousands of hours of potentially wasted time. They were in the financial services space. And it was a really high touch sale. Like it was like a phone based sale. They couldn't do it online, but they were really interested in doing like a, a self service kind of like, you know, enroll, like self enrollment online. So they're like telling us about this and we're getting excited about it in theory. And somebody said, somebody was like, Hey, how about we just put a link like on the thank you page, for instance, that's like, Hey, you want to enroll yourself? Like just click here just to see how many people click on it. Right. And, and I think we did something like when somebody clicked on it, it would like trigger a little light box that was like, oops, like it's not yet ready yet. You know, put your email address in here or something. Um, and we expected that at least 30 or 40% of people would click on that, but it was like crickets. Like nobody wanted to self-enroll online, surprisingly to everybody. Such a great example. It gets back to that 60% of the time being wrong. I mean, I... You know, I've been in marketing for a while and I feel like, you know, when you do your 360 feedback, like I always hear, oh, you're a good listener. You understand the customer. So I'm liable to think I should be able to trust my gut, but I can't tell you how many times I say, well, I'm pretty sure they're going to choose this, but let's test it. And then I'm wrong. And it's just, it's so humbling. And I actually think it adds to the fun of this. Uh, you know, I, I, I sort of love the fact that we can't properly predict, um, exactly what humans are going to do in any one situation. And so I just think it's the, it's the, um, the sane thing. It's the logical thing to do is just to let the market tell you. And I've used it many times with the CEO too, I have to say, who, um, you know, CEOs, uh, have gotten to where they've gotten because they followed up on something that they believed in and they dug in and they, you know, pushed past a lot of naysayers who said this can't be done and there's no way. And so they've sort of, they pride themselves, rightly so, on sort of proving the doubters wrong. And so it's yeah. always interesting for a marketer to have to come in and then say, I don't think that's what people are going to go with. And I have found that a well-run experiment can very often, not always, <laughs> but very often um, really help them see it differently and start to change their minds. Um, otherwise, you're just having an argument back and forth. And that's, I don't blame a CEO for not caving when it's just, one opinion versus another. And frankly, they're the opinion of the person that got the company this far. Yep. Yeah. Good old hippo. Have you heard of that? The hippo? No. The highest paid person in the room's opinion. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. So we got through the first two uh, portions of your framework. Let's talk about the third one real quick. Just making sure that everything builds toward a, mo a more cohesive strategy. That seems pretty self-explanatory, very logical, and I could see how that could breathe ongoing life into a testing uh, program that you know is just like based around some of some higher purposes. Uh, is there more to that third piece that you want to mention? 
Well, I just think this is where, um, you know, starting with that core objective, having an overall North Star metric that you're headed for, you know, we, we um, as a company, we, re- we revisit our North Star metric every year. We're about to go through it again here for 2024 very soon. And so I think it's important to have that strategic framework to begin with, right? We've got our North Star metric. We've got our core pillars that we believe differentiate us from the competition. And we have kind of our our set of objectives, our kind of four overriding objectives for the year that the yeah. whole company is trying to steer towards. And so really when you finish an experiment, understanding the, okay, so now where does that fit back into that, you know, to use that puzzle analogy again, like we've got the piece now, where exactly does it fit? I think that is what's most important. And that's what helps you not get sort of down a rabbit hole on any one experiment or just being able to make uh, the most out of those out of those results, and so um, that is the benefit, I think, of a well-defined hypothesis. Really setting those benchmarks up front, doing that research, all of that was hopefully in service of understanding why this will matter or not, depending on what you learn. And you know, I mean, this hopefully goes without saying for for your audience, but obviously, a failed experiment is just as valuable, if not more, than a successful experiment. But I think really sitting down and doing that retro afterwards and trying to determine why do we think and so what's next is is the piece that is so crucial there. And I just think all of that leads up to telling us kind of what's going to work and what isn't going to work. And for example, in really defining the audience for MetaMap, which has actually been quite an ongoing journey to understand exactly who the buyer and user are in this case, I think we've learned as much from failed experiments as we have from successful ones in that case. Yeah. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I want to talk about MetaMap in a, uh, in a minute, but I, I always love win stories. I would love to hear a win story. I know you've only been there for, um, it looks like about a year based on LinkedIn, but are there any big like winning uh, experiments you can tell us about either at MetaMap or in one of your previous lifetimes just to kind of get everyone's juices flowing? I'm trying to think about like the off the charts single experiment because it feels like it so often comes in like in like uh you know fits and starts but little bits right I think the biggest progress we've made at MetaMap is um you know met so I I know MetaMap's coming up next so forgive me that I'm I'm jumping ahead a little bit but MetaMap is really built with a, a pretty big vision in mind um of where we want to get. And it's kind of a big, bold vision that is going to take years to kind of, you know, come to fruition. Um, and I think the biggest, pr- and so as a result, a lot of the engineering time, a lot of the product time is invested in trying to get to that, basically building that castle of the, for the future. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're, we're selling MetaMap now, we're like we're making deals now. And so I think the, the biggest gains we had have, have had this year have really been realizing exactly what today's customers are doing versus tomorrow's. And of course, there's, you know, the the often abused uh, quote about, you know, Henry Ford asking them what they'd want, and they'd say, you know, faster horses. And um, that's true. But if we're not ready to start selling the Model T, like, let's sell some horses, you know? And yeah. so I actually think a really interesting challenge has been figuring out what they want out of us today and what we can do while also hopefully recognizing within that customer base who seems ready for this future version. Because we're sort of 
running some betas in the back uh, in the background of where we're trying to go. So we want the right customers in our customer base, but at the same time, we've got revenue goals like anybody else. And so I think um, that's been a lot of fun. Like, you know, uh, Metamap is late series B, but I keep saying in some ways they're actually a series A because I think they use that first money to just um, really try to start to build that product of the future, which is really exciting. But in a lot yeah. of ways, we're also still determining sort of exactly why we win. Um, yeah. And so that's been really interesting. And so I think we have a much different and improved vision now of our audience, uh, why we win regularly, how we stack up against competition. And so it's kind of interesting to be doing that while hopefully having a secret ace up our sleeves for the future of kind of where where we hope to head. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's really interesting. And uh and an exciting but you know potentially challenging predicament to be in. Uh, just in terms of, you know, the the Henry Ford analogy where it's like everybody's buying horses, but you've actually got a Model T. Like, is anybody going to want this? Totally. Um, right. I mean, Model T is the positive example. And then, of course, there's all the Betamaxes of the world that show, you know, sometimes people aren't ready uh, as, as much as you're like, but I swear it's so much better. Uh, right. People aren't ready. And so that's what I think that... Um, Really focusing on how can we win now, I think also helps us hopefully get there because we're not just building and wishing. We're we're also actively learning with current customers sort of where they're willing to go, where they're not. I love using the example of of Apple all the time, which is, you know, um, they're always working on two to three iPhones ahead of time. But when they're up on stage, they're launching this phone with this camera as if it's the greatest thing you will ever see in the world. They know there are generations ahead of kind of where they're going to go, but their job right now is to sell that iPhone and make you want this one and fall in love with it. And by watching how people use this one, they're also going to learn and, and start to modify for where they were headed for where they're headed next. It's not sort of like set in stone. And so I like to use that analogy all the time because they're great at convincing you that what they've got today is the best it's going to get. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that's really interesting. Cool. Well, I think you've got everybody really curious to um, to know more about MetaMap and to understand exactly uh, what it's all about or who might use it. You want to give us kind of like an overview of um, of MetaMap and just kind of what some of the top use cases are. Yeah, totally. Uh, so MetaMap, as you mentioned, is in the space of identity verification. But what I think is most interesting about it is we're focused on emerging countries. So primarily in Latin America and Africa. And oh, two things interesting. are interesting there. Number one, there's been an absolute explosion of fintech companies there, right? They're, these countries largely had just very traditional banks that had been around for generations, not quite as much experimentation as maybe the US or Europe. And so now with the internet, you know, so widely spread and companies starting to uh, and, and just startups started starting to take hold there. There are just a wave of companies trying really interesting things with uh, finance. The other really interesting thing is there is no massive Experian or Equifax um, or kind of company that has been around for decades and decades that is sort of the single authority on how credit worthy you are. And <laughs> so, as you know, if you're a big bank, you just say, well, tough, like, you know, uh, not approved, not approved, not approved. If you're a startup and you don't sort of have that 
base of of customers, um, you can't just rely on that. You've got to be able to start to get a little bit more scrappy in terms of how you figure out if maybe they're they're credit worthy. Maybe not for a million dollar loan, but maybe for a thousand dollar loan, right? And so, what MetaMap really helps with is how can we help connect these uh, potential customers to as many different data sources there are about them, right? It's where they live. It's yes, of course, how much money they have, and some you know basics in terms of um, just kind of the the core statistics we have about them. It's obviously okay. kind of you know court records stuff like that potentially. It, but it can also be their job, where they work, how long they've worked there. Do they work for something like a ride-sharing company? If so, uh, how many ratings do they have and what's their average rating, right? There are the, all these other signals that someone is potentially trustworthy, reliable, responsible, um, that we may not think to use in the United States, but that actually could be incredibly good signal for a lot of these countries. And Two-thirds of the world's population is actually essentially unbanked. They don't have access to these kinds of services. Yeah. So not only is there a tremendous opportunity to get more of these people more opportunity, which feels great, but if you're talking to a major bank in Colombia, let's say, it also represents a huge opportunity for them to make more money because right. they're not looking at a huge portion of their population right now, which is crazy. And of course, some segment of them are potentially fraudulent or criminals. So, you know, we need to be careful. This isn't about letting everyone in, but it is about really understanding where that's actually true and where they were just too risk averse before to to take that chance. But if we can give them more information, it suddenly doesn't feel like such a such a risk. Wow. So uh without getting too granular, how does MetaMap get that data? So for instance, like in the ride and you know the individual that works for a ride share company. Like you guys get all that data automatically and in real time? So, I mean, it's it's a lot. Our, our data team is very, very busy. It's a lot of individual deals that we strike. So we often buy that data. Um, and a lot of the, you know, we're not the only ones that buy a lot of that data. But um, what we are doing, we think better than anyone, is uh, integrating all of these different data types onto a single platform. So hey. that if I'm looking at you, Chris, and I can see your profile and I can switch on or off what's important to me and what limits are important to me and get back a really quick uh, risk assessment score because I'm potentially signing up 100 customers a minute on my on my website. So I need to make these incredibly fast decisions. And then on the back end, I need really good data that shows me how I did and what that resulted in over time so that I can decide if I want to tighten up or loosen up kind of some of my criteria. So it's right. really about that integration of a lot of different data types. Um, but we're also starting to do things like letting customers upload their own data as well into it. So you can mix some proprietary data along with kind of third-party data. Um, so yeah, it comes from governments, it comes from companies, it comes from a wide range of places. Wow, that's really interesting. Very cool. Well, um, and so are you guys pretty much focused exclusively uh, international? Like, like most... Well, it sounds like most of your business is there, but is all your business there or do you have US-based customers too? Overwhelmingly, our business is there. We, we do have a few US customers, a few like Western Europe uh, customers. Um, and the reason we're focused there is a couple of things. Number one, the market's not nearly as mature. There are companies in the US that have been doing something sort of similar for a while. And like we said, everyone still looks first and foremost to you know Equifax, Experian, et cetera. Right. Um, FICO scores, et cetera. Um, 
but the other reason why is so so there's a there's a better chance to be competitive but there's also this really exciting um deficiency in sort of a a common standard right now and so i use the analogy sometimes of you know africa didn't have nearly the landline penetration for phones that other countries did so when cell phones came it was a truly a revolution where they almost skipped a generation and i think there's really that possibility here as well um you know my ceo's argument is that you know fico and some of the traditional credit agencies are are hardly perfect in fact they're far from it um he's an example of it where he grew up in poland uh you know went to wharton has a startup with millions of dollars in the bank and yet when he was in the united states and he did start this company was in he was in san francisco he couldn't get someone to rent him an apartment because nobody trusted him and he's like but i have all of these other indicators that would lead you to believe i'm a pretty decent risk on some level um yeah. but they didn't care because they would just go to equifax and they'd say oh not a us citizen you know don't have the don't have enough data on this person and so people were like no thank you he couldn't open a bank account right so um, wow. even the united states is actually broken so never say never we would we would love to imagine the day that you know we can we can help the us as well but it's actually a really interesting challenge to try to solve this first in uh countries that are screaming for this cuz they need it that badly. Um yeah. so that's the goal and as a marketer it's it's fascinating because I have never focused on these markets as primary markets versus secondary markets and talk about really not being able to make assumptions about your audience. Uh yeah. that's is more true here than than ever before. Right, right. Wow, well that's super exciting man. Big big revenue opportunities it sounds like with the growth in those economies and just the percentage of the population that's unbanked or underbanked so and i can see you guys are killing it i'm on linkedin right now looks like you've uh i'm just on the insights tab you've grown it looks like 42 percent over two years in terms of headcount which is a very rapid clip um i'm curious like what is really driving your revenue engine like if you think about go to market motions or traffic sources like where are uh, most of your leads and prospects and deals coming from well so this is something we've pivoted a little bit we were running a pretty heavy sales led motion um we had a sales team you know that was uh endemic within latin america and within africa and so just working a lot of you know contacts and and kind of starting that way in the need to get more efficient though as you mentioned like the the cac was actually pretty tough and it was a good way to get started and get in deep with uh some of those industries where we know we knew we needed to get traction but we are really in the middle of pivoting now to a much more uh marketing led and inbound uh driven motion and so um this is where free tier becomes a lot more important um we've seen some really good traction from folks who start for free so we basically give you 300 verifications for free so you can actually hook it up to your website you can pick which data you need and you can you can actually start the process of onboarding folks and see it firsthand and see what the results are and so that's been um that's been really useful for us and then you know the more we have really come to understand our audience the more we've really come to understand what resonates with them and what's what's going to get them to leave the current ways that they do this because of course all of them are already doing something to determine whether to accept a current customer or not. Yeah. Uh as we get that messaging tighter it's given us more confidence to lean more deeply into demand generation as well. So from an efficiency standpoint, um I think we've dropped 
our acquisition cost by like 75% over the course of this year. So that that gives us the confidence to start to turn up that money spigot and, and spend more even in an economy like this. Yeah, that's awesome, man. That's really cool. So as we as we round out the year here and you look forward to uh 2024 like what are some of the big things on your roadmap or like some of the things you're investing in or some of the big initiatives that you guys uh see on the horizon Yeah, I think two big areas. Um one is still continuing to uh dig deeper into audience understanding. I think yeah. there again there are definitely there's the cultural aspect. There's, you know, there are a couple of different audiences we're dealing with. We're dealing, you know, another interesting thing about Latin America is a lot of the loans that are happening there are actually from retailers. So when mm-hmm. you buy a cell phone, even even a pair of shoes, we've got a shoe a shoe company that basically, you know, you can buy on credit. Um, yeah. So all of these companies that aren't traditionally financial companies suddenly are. Um, we see that some somewhat here too, right? Apple launches the Apple Card and you know, you can kind of get uh, loans from a bunch of different companies now, but um, there it's really turning these companies into a different type of company. So that's interesting. But understanding exactly what a retail company wants from us versus a ride-sharing company. So ride-sharing companies use us not just for getting a loan, although they do give loans to some of their uh, drivers to help kind of pay for a car, but also just understanding who to who to hire, right? And understanding yeah. kind of how to vet them from that standpoint. So. There's these different use cases, and I think there's more we still need to really understand about each of these audiences and what's keeping them up at night um, so that we can connect kind of more, uh, just more powerfully with these folks and more successfully uh, on a consistent basis. So we have some pretty deep audience initiatives we want to do, both to better understand those who are successfully using us right now. And we do have over 600 customers, so we have quite a, a lot to choose from. It's just a question of understanding who are most typical and who are kind of, you know, we have a lot of kind of smaller users. Um, so that's a big initiative. And then the other area in the in the realm of efficiency is uh, we really want to ramp up what we're doing on the customer side. So um, we still are fairly high touch from a service standpoint, just like you were talking about earlier um, in, in another instance, but we still use humans to really help fix a lot of things. And I think to hit the efficiency goals we want to hit, I think we really need to make more of this self-serve. I actually think it leads to a better product experience also where our banks and financial institutions can really see all of the choices available to them. Our goal is to ultimately help you make the right decisions based on your risk tolerance, what you're trying to do in your business objectives. So in a lot of ways, the more we can expose that inner decision-making to them and let them sort of uh, have at the controls of a master dashboard, the better. So it's really working alongside product, customer success to see if we can start to build a more automated version of this, but that involves a lot more communication. And so that's really where where marketing comes in as well. So um, that to me is a really fascinating area here too, where it's not just customer acquisition, customer acquisition, but how do you actually continue to build on that promise and uh, build a better customer experience on the back end? And frankly, get a lot more data. Like I, I see a bunch more experiments in my future when I think about um, how we could run that uh, that self serve, uh, you know, motion kind of for current customers. Yeah. So it would almost be like you know, customer logs in, they see their current criteria, 
there might be like an estimate of like, you know, this will probably be 97% effective. So it's relatively stringent, but then they could tweak some of the variables or some of the requirements and be like, you know, this will be 85% accurate. And so you'll get more volume through, but you might get like some scammers or some bad actors at a higher rate with this criteria. Is that kind of what you're envisioning? Exactly right. And you know, it wouldn't be a, it wouldn't be a marketing podcast if we didn't mention AI at least once. Right. Um, so, you know, we already are using AI on the back end for this, but um, yes, the, the idea is to improve that more and more where it really starts to coach you and suggest things, but ultimately it's your decision because the reality is, like you said, different financial institutions have different levels of risk they're willing to take. We've, we've seen that throughout our history. And, and so we don't want to be sort of the arbiter of saying like, nope, that's too risky. Like it's ultimately up to the company to decide um, because we don't think there's perfect information out there for any given institution. And so that's the idea exactly is to kind of coach you and help you, but let you make the decision while showing you what it believes the consequences will be and then allowing you to track, track it on the back end. That's super cool, man. Well, exciting for you. Uh, this has been an awesome conversation. It's inspired me to uh, test more often, but I'm really excited for you guys because it's you're sort of in this state where you have some traction, you know, you have some resources, but you, there's still just a lot of unexplored terrain, and it's almost like uh, you know, there's a lot of exciting things to be uncovered, and I'm sure you guys will do very well. Yeah, well, thank you. It's 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 the fun of it. I think a lot of us get into marketing because we're curious types and because we uh we want to sort of learn and create and and try to you know gauge the results on the back end so to me it's what keeps me excited about this as the field that i'm in like it it never makes the day boring right yeah brilliant well thank you very much for coming on here today dan i think uh this was really awesome and for everybody listening if you enjoyed this if you learned anything or if you laughed a little bit Drop us a like, share this with a friend, or give us a five-star rating wherever you get your pods. We sure would appreciate that. Um, Dan, you want to do the lightning round? Do you have yeah, time? Yeah, let's do it. Of course. All right, I mean, cool. we, we wouldn't be your podcast without the lightning round, right? Nice. <laughs> All right, cool. So question number one is, if you were to start a side hustle, what side hustle would that be? Well, I love all forms of media. Um, I'm pretty media obsessed. So my simple answer is a journalist. I could imagine being a journalist in another life. They're uh, amazing storytellers. My more complicated answer would be, I think there is a startup idea that is some sort of aggregation of all of this micromedia that's around us now, right? There's there's you know streams coming from every type of a website. There's obviously TV, whatever TV is anymore. There's podcast newsletters, like uh, I, there's music, like I am obsessed with finding the right stuff for me. And frankly, I would be willing to give up a lot about myself to get a more optimal stream. So I think someone's got to do it. It's not cable anymore. It's something way bigger than that. I think, yeah. I think that would be a fun, uh, idea. I think you could sell a ton of advertising against it. Uh, so either journalist or that, whatever that is. <laughs> That's a good idea. I like that idea a lot. And, uh, you can have I found it. I found an app recently. I'm trying to think of the name of it, but it was like that. But the only, the only media was like news articles. Like it didn't have music or anything. Right. Like. Yeah. There's there's quite a few of those. Right. It's kind of like an RSS reader, but for every type of media in your life. Right. Right. Cool. I like that. Uh, question number two is: 
top three books, authors, influencers, podcasts, any information source that has really made an impact on you? Yeah, this was a tough one. So um, it was hard to name only three, but I'm going to go with uh, number one, the book Good Strategy, Bad Strategy by Richard mm-hmm. Rummelt. Okay. Um, we talked a couple times today about being methodical. And what I think is really interesting about that book is uh, he treats strategy, which is a uh, very abused word, as he points out as well, um, yeah. in a very methodical way, but while acknowledging there are no easy answers. Like I, I detest business books that are like step one, step two, step three. So it's it's challenging in that way, but he does talk about staying focused, defining that challenger opportunity, then channeling all of your energy into solving that by picking specific approaches and a set of coherent actions. It's really about being very intentful, um, very focused. And I, I just I've I've learned a lot from it and I really try to take a lot from it because in startups there are a thousand things competing for your attention. Yeah. And I am this big believer in making huge leaps forward. We talked about it with experiments, but making sure it's all building towards those core things that matter. Otherwise, you have a day where you were very, very busy, but you actually didn't get that much done that moves the business forward. So that's yep. my first one. My second one. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. That just happened. I, I would say that happens to me all the oh. time. I'm sure it happens to many people. I'm just, guilty of it too. Yeah. Totally. Uh, my second is a, is a, a more from left field. It's a book called Start Where You Are by Pima Chodron, who's a Buddhist nun. And um, the way she puts it is it's about like cultivating fearlessness and awakening a compassionate heart. Those are her words. But I think it's really about, um, and it is about, you know, kind of principles of Buddhism. Um, Again, it wouldn't be Silicon Valley if we weren't talking about uh, something Mm -hmm. like that. But um, I think we've all tried to use the meditation app and maybe a lot of us haven't been as successful. To me, this is kind of the philosophy that helps me better understand it. And it really is about keeping life in perspective, living in a current moment, holding the good with the bad. It's all, it all matters and it's all um, to be absorbed and not kind of pushed away. And I think there's something really important in there because, you know, I'm now on my third startup and I've just come to realize it's just a nonstop rush of stuff, right? There's highs, there's lows, there's stresses. And I think you've got to be able to pull yourself out from from that stream and just kind of live with it a little bit, or you or this this thing will grind you down. And so that's been a really important balancing piece for me to be able to kind of like clear my brain and jump back in the other day, the next day. Whether you do the meditation or not, just that that perspective has really helped me. Mm, I like that one. I'll check that out. Cool. How about number three? Number three, well, I said I like all forms of micromedia, so I can't just go with books. Um, So I am going to go with the podcast. It's also a little out there. It's not a marketing podcast. It's called Heavyweight um, with this guy, Jonathan Goldstein. And every episode, he's basically, he meets someone, most of the time he's never met them before, and he's helping them either reconnect with someone or solve something they were never quite uh, able to solve on their own. It's less of a mystery and it's more of just a, problem in their life, something they wanted to kind of tackle. It's often very, very funny. But the reason I choose it is I actually think it's a masterclass in the power of narrative. Like he is such an amazing storyteller. And we talked a lot about science today, but the art side is like I said earlier, why I got into marketing. It's the beauty. Like marketing should make you cry at times. It should make you laugh. 
Um, and I think this podcast to me is a really helpful reminder of that. I can tell you of an episode where someone tried to figure out why their babysitter stopped visiting. That sounds like the worst podcast ever, but he makes it about something far deeper. It's about human connection and you know your hopes and aspirations as a kid versus when you grow up. And all of a sudden, he takes this thing that seemed like such a basic story and turns it into this like amazing il- illustrative story about life. And so, anyways, I just think he's a master at it, and yeah. I learn from him all the time. It's highly enjoyable. So when you've had enough like marketing speak, um, throw on heavyweight, and uh, I-, I guarantee you, you'll enjoy it. Cool. Yeah, I might I might have to turn that on uh, on the ride home today. That sounds really interesting. Please start at the beginning. All right. Good. Good. I will. Um, cool. And question number three is how do you avoid burnout and how do you help your team to avoid burnout as well? Well, this probably won't surprise you that, um, given some of those recommendations I just gave, it's, it's not all about marketing. It's not all about kind of that world. In fact, the, my favorite thing about marketing, I said before it attracts curious people is I really think it it attracts, you're going to be better at marketing if you can live a more interesting life. And so I really try to avoid burnout by, doing as many different things as I can when I have time. So the def it's definitely getting outside, you know, got to get my dogs around the block, got to exercise, um, pushing my own creativity. I actually have a podcast, Chris, it's not quite as buttoned up as yours, uh, with a couple of buddies where we, um, rank albums from worst song to best song. It's called, we will rank you. So that's a lot of fun. Nice. Uh, I'm part of an improv troupe. Um, and then, you know, just human time, friends and family. And, uh, I personally work from home, so it's a lot of zoom calls. And I think it just becomes really important to reconnect with humans as humans. Um, yeah. cause at the end of the day, we're humans, we're trying to sell to other humans and, um, you can look at spreadsheets all day, but you have to remember at the end of the day that it's a, a human making an emotional decision. I think that's a big part of what I try to keep in mind, uh, every day as I do this. Nice. Well, that's great advice. Dan, thank you so much. This has been awesome. I'm sure that everybody has enjoyed it thoroughly. I've learned a lot. I've been inspired also. Uh, For folks that want to learn more about you or Metamap, where would you direct them? Uh, Well, metamap.com is the website. If you want to check that out, there's going to be a new version by the end of the year. So we're racing towards that. Um, And you can find me and reach out to me on LinkedIn as well. Very good. All right, everybody. Well, that was another exciting episode of Revenue Driven CMO. We will see you next time. And that's a wrap. Thanks for joining us here today. For show notes and other episodes, visit us at revenuedrivencmo.com. That's revenuedrivencmo.com. And hey, exclusive for listeners of this podcast, Web Mechanics will do 10 to 20 hours of work for you for free. Literally no sales calls, no BS. Just give them a problem and they will put a team to work for you for free for 10 to 20 hours. Even if you're already a client, if you're struggling with demand gen, lead gen, SEO, SEM, Google ads, LinkedIn ads, conversion optimization, if you can't get Facebook or meta ads to work for the life of you, or you can't figure out attribution, web mechanics will take a good hard look at whatever problem you give them, whatever programs you put in front of them, and they will give you an objective, informed opinion, plus some advice from 10 to 20 hours of senior level attention. And that's just because you're a listener of this podcast. So I would suggest take them up on this offer. It's ridiculous. Go to revenuedrivencmo.com slash free 
fill out the two-minute form and you will not regret it. Literally zero downside, unlimited potential for growth. So do yourself a favor, revenuedrivencmo.com slash free, no hyphens, no punctuations. You will be happy about that decision.